Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for this transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And Lord God, we thank you that we can be here today on this pinnacle of days, the the high point of the year for Christians. Thank you, Lord, that this is the pinnacle of days of all history to remember that what you have done on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we could read your word that is completely true. Thank you, Lord, that you speak. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us. 
Lord, we ask you today that you would open our hearts, that, that we would learn, that we would learn from you, that we would obey you, that we would look to you, that we would trust in you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would change us as we, as we look at your word now, that, that you would do what you want among us, Lord, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The cross is the main event. The main event. But many deny the truth of the cross either with their words or with their lives. This is our big day. This is the big day for Christians around the world. This is the pinnacle day of all history. All history before the cross looked forward to the cross. And everything afterwards looks back at the cross. This is our big day, but some people want nothing to do with it. Christopher Hitchens, the author of the book God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything, has toured the country since 2007 when his book came out, Debating Religious Leaders. He was interviewed by a Unitarian minister in Portland, Oregon, Marilyn Sewell, and she started off the interview by saying this, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the Bible stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement that Jesus died for our sins. Hitchens, an atheist, surprisingly answered, well, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. He's not a Christian but knows what one is. She says she is but doesn't know and denies the truth. Those who claim to belong to Jesus Christ must grasp firmly the gospel message, must understand the truth of the cross, or else we're in trouble. J.I. Packer said the cross takes us to the very heart of the gospel story, the very heart of the Christian gospel. So today I want to focus on some key aspects that are at the heart of the gospel as seen in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament. We're going to see what Jesus did, why he did it, and what results. So first of all, what did Jesus do? What happened at the cross? What, what's the big idea? What's the big deal with the cross? Well, let me put it very simply. What Jesus did is exactly what the Bible says he did. I'll give you a few things that he did at the cross. And, and, and every, everyone in this room could probably answer this question um, 
And, it, and what did Jesus do? And here's the first answer. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. You see it very clearly and, and briefly spoken in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance. Now this is the most important thing I could tell you, Paul says. And here's what it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Bible says. That's the simple truth. Isaiah, though, in chapter 53 and verse 1, begins like this. Who has believed our message? And the answer, quite simply, to that first question in Isaiah chapter 53 is no one. No one's believed. Now you'll remember back in Isaiah 52 and verse 15, the, the verse right before this, says that kings of the nations will be shocked because never before had they, had they even fathomed a deliverer who would stoop so low to deliver them. And they would believe. There would be this believing group of people that God would generate and gather. But Isaiah 53 1 tells us that those who heard the message that God gave to Isaiah and has given to us to share with the world, that those who heard the message responded in unbelief. Didn't believe. The answer is no one. Now, believe means to believe what is said, to believe the facts, to believe the truth. And here's the thing. Who could have guessed that the arm of the Lord would look like this? Isaiah 52 and verse 10 says that God has bared his holy arm. What that means is that God is going to be present with his people in a present way to save them. And so in Isaiah 53, 1, when we read that to whom the arm, has the arm of the Lord been revealed... Who would have guessed that the arm would look like this? Born into humble circumstances. Most would not have picked Jesus out of a lineup of would-be saviors. The arm of the Lord, his personal presence in personal action. The Lord himself come to save his people from their sins, but the arm of the Lord was dismissed as unimportant. Verse 2, Isaiah 53, He grew up before him like a, a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And so verse 3 says he was despised and rejected. We, we use despised in a, in a, in a very uh, emotional sense. The Hebrew does not have that same significance. It's a, it's a very uh, unemotional word. It just means they dismissed him. It was, it was unimportant to them. Really no emotion Involved. The arm of the Lord dismissed as unimportant. But see, Isaiah 53 2 points to Jesus being born that day in humble circumstances in Bethlehem. It points to the incarnation of God becoming a man. It points to the cross. And 
How could a mere man be the arm of the Lord, people would think? How could someone who grew up before the Lord be the arm of the Lord? And he had no form, no beauty, no majesty, just common folk. All the pictures you see of Jesus that people paint show him as uh, head of the class. But he had no form, no beauty, no majesty, uh, and yet his, his entire ministry was uncommon. Most would agree. But they were not thinking major, they were not thinking stable, they were not thinking baby born in Bethlehem. They were thinking conquering superhero. Some were not thinking. <laughs> so they dismissed him without a look. John chapter 7, verse 41. Uh, some people got hung up on this. Hey, he's from Nazareth, not, he doesn't live in Bethlehem. And uh, in John 7, they said, so some said, this is the Christ. Some people said that. They were thinking, and they, they thought it through, and they, they connected the dots, and they said, this is the Christ. And others said, well, wait a minute, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, from the town of Bethlehem? So they dismissed him. Verse 3 says that he was despised. He was, he was rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. The grief and the sorrow were, was not his own. See, Jesus, in dying for our sins and rising from the grave, was our substitute. Our substitute. Now, you've got to rescue that term from our common usage because in sports or in school a sub is the second team it's not the way this is meant he was our substitute meaning he took what we deserved he took it in our place he he took upon himself all the sins that we should have paid for he was despised he was rejected he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and he was our substitute. He took our griefs, verse 4. He took our sorrows. He took our pain. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Esteemed is an accounting word. It, it, it's a reckoning of value. What I saw, what, what minds understood, added up to zero in their accounting. They esteemed him as being stricken and smitten and afflicted for his own sins. Well, he must be suffering because he did something wrong. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Our, our transgressions, those are our willful, rebellious, deliberate acts against God. Parents, there are people who live in your house who do deliberate, willful, they look so good today, but rebellious sins against you. Sorry, kids, you're looking at me with, you're mad at me, I know, but I'm, I'm, it's true. Sometimes our kids disappoint us. They, they do things willfully, disobediently, and it hurts. There are spouses 
who do willful, deliberate, disobedient things against their spouse. No elbows. See, Jesus was wounded for our transgression. Kids, that means your willful disobedience towards your parents. Jesus was wounded for that. Spouses, that means that you're willful, rebellious, uh, whatever, towards your spouse. Jesus was wounded for that. Now, I'm just saying. I, I'm realizing I'm using some examples, but I think you're a little bit like me. And I do that. I'm not the only one, okay? He was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities. Not his. He didn't have any. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities is an interesting word. Iniquities means literally in the Hebrew to bend double. Uh, it, it points to the bentness or pervertedness of human nature, of our sinful human nature. Now, some of you are, are getting uncomfortable right now because you've been taught and conditioned to think we don't talk about sin. Because if you don't talk about it, it, it doesn't exist. Well, I'm here to tell you today that it does and I'm looking at living proof. You look great today. But tomorrow, I know how you live. Because I do too. Willful, disobedient, deliberate sin against God. Jesus took that sin. He took our iniquities, the result of the fall. The, the, the ongoing nature of sin. Sin is daily just like life is daily. Verse 4, uh, there are two words in direct contrast. He and we. He bore our griefs and we didn't care and we esteemed him as stricken, meaning he was paying for his own sin. Wrong. His sufferings were for us, but we had no part in his sufferings. Do you realize that people stood back and figured he deserved what he got? But it was for us who deserved the punishment, not him. He, uh, and there's some emphatic, uh, strong words here. He was crushed, and upon him fell, and his wounds these are emphatic words. He dealt, what, 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 is, what is being spoken of here is that when he died on the cross, he was, was dealing with our moral and spiritual need. Now, it's interesting that we are not mentioned except for being the contributing factor in his pain. So with no cooperation from us or understanding from us, the servant took upon himself all of our sins. You know, when someone's halfway decent towards you, they're halfway nice to you, you figure, I can go out of my way to help them. You know? they, 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 they do something wrong, and, and you say, well, I can forgive them for that. They're nice person, you know. But when somebody hates you and deliberately tries to shun you, and then they do something again, and then they do something that they want you to, you know, let them go for? You don't want to do that. You want to hurt them. You want to help them, right? Well, one person here tells me that's true. It's okay. We can be honest here. We're, we're amongst family. We're amongst friends, okay? We want to, oh, no. If, if someone is not a, a kind towards us, we don't want to be kind towards them. That's painful. 
That hurts. He and we, his sufferings for us, but we had no part in them and were not mentioned except for being the instigators of the pain. And so he dealt with our sin. He dealt with our alienation from God. He dealt with the marred image of God in us. He did that on the cross. That's why we can sit here and, and, and barely get out. And I know, I'm the same way. He is risen indeed. A little more gusto. And we have to work ourselves up. Let's, let's say it really loud, you know. Uh, he died for our sin, and his punishment was not his fault. Not as a result of anything on him, but as a result of our sin. It's hard for us to grasp this far down the road, isn't it? It's just hard for us to grasp the, the immensity of what we're talking about. But what this is known as, and we're going to give them some big words here, so, so kids, help your parents on these, okay? This, this is known as the substitutionary atonement. And this cannot be downplayed. These are important words. Because I'm telling you, there are people who say they believe Jesus that don't believe in the substitutionary atonement. So they don't believe the Jesus from the Bible. The, the, the Bible Jesus did what is called substitutionary atonement. It's the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. It's the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus dying in our place. He did not merely suffer because of people's sins, but in the place of the people who sin. It's a big difference. See, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those words um, demand the word substitution. It's like, there's like all arrows pointing at the word substitution substitution verse 5 he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities wounded crushed chastisement punishment that screams the word penal so you put penal substitution Jesus was penalized we say penalized for our sins that's what penal substitution means. He was penalized for our sins. He deserved praise, not the punishment, but chose the cross. He acts by means of substitution. He put himself in our place, the place we should have occupied. Verse 4, he lifts up what he is doing, as it says, he bore and carried, the sins were lifted up and then loaded upon himself. The punishment essential for our peace with God fell on him. The substitution imagery is taken right from Leviticus chapter 16. For what happened once a year on the Day of Atonement for the people of Israel, where on that day, in the day of Moses and Aaron, approach to God was a tricky business. You couldn't do it. And if you did it haphazardly, you could lose your life. Once a year, the people would see their sins taken away out into the wilderness and it would keep going because their sins were 
representatively on a scapegoat. And they would send the goat out and let it keep going. Drive it out, and then it's gone. And it was out of their sight. The idea was that once a year, the people saw their sins, in a sense, completely removed. Put on the scapegoat, sent out into the wilderness, and then the people's one representative, the high priest, would go into, once a year, the holy of holies. The place that no one dared go without a sacrifice for their own sins. And so the priest would make sacrifice for himself, and then he would make offering for the sins of the people. And this went on year after year after year. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 let us know that the same sacrifices year after year could not permanently take away sin. But how much more than the blood of Jesus shed once for all takes away sin, covers sin. The punishment doesn't need to be re-inflicted again and again and again. It was done once for all and finished. What did Jesus say while he was on the cross? It is finished. Never to be repeated again. Our substitute did it once for all. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24 tells us, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He did that for us. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Why did Jesus die on the cross in our place for our sins? Why did he substitute himself in our place? I'll give you four reasons. And the first is this. God's great love. Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, substituting himself because of God's great love. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed. He was afflicted, and he didn't open his mouth. You remember the trials between Pilate, in front of Pilate and Herod? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The very words that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, when Philip was sent by God to preach the gospel to him and lead him to Christ. Lead him to faith in Christ. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. They considered him stricken for the transgression of the people. They made his grave with the wicked. There were two thieves killed on either side of him while he lived, lay uh, hung on the cross. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, giving his grave to bury Jesus in. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth it's what's called the impeccability of Christ he could not sin and still he took the nails the pain the scorn the weight of sin for us and he did it because of God's love he did it because of love 
You see, Jesus was beaten by ungodly men to a bloody pulp. He was whipped. He was thrashed. He was abused to the point of death. And then they put him on the cross. To die. To be made a spectacle before the world. And it was, it was all for love that the creator of the universe allowed himself to be treated in this way. That he allowed himself to be hated so that he could show us his love. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says, it was, it was the Lord's pleasure to do this. God was pleased to crush the Son. The Father was pleased to crush the Son. He allowed himself to be treated like this because, because it was going to provide a guilt offering for sin. God's heart was revealed in that act. God's heart was revealed in delighting to provide a sin offering, a guilt offering. John chapter 3 and verse 16. I would venture to guess that everyone in this room probably knows, knows this, this verse or, or parts of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not die for their sin, but have what? Everlasting life. Life forever with God because of the sacrifice of Christ in our place on the cross, substituting himself out of love for us. 1 John chapter 4 tells us this is love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. We'll get to that word later. But why did Jesus do it? Because he loved us. We use the word so, so flippantly. I love you. Love you. Love all you guys. Well, you know what? God loved so much that Jesus did what he did. There's a few more reasons, though, why he did it. The next is because of our desperate need. Our desperate need is very clear. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's what sheep do. They go astray. And when they go astray, they go out into the wilderness, away from their shepherd, and they are then in danger. See, we had a desperate need. All we and the Lord is in Isaiah 50, 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray and we've each turned everyone to their own way and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on Him. What an exchange. It's not fair, is it? It's not fair that we should get that benefit when we were so undeserving. But we were in desperate need. And see, the Lord acting as high priest in relation to the victim, in relation to the servant, loads up on him all of our wrongdoing. And do you notice? He suffers, and we're, we're still straying. All we like sheep have gone astray, and he suffers in our play. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him, and we're straying like sheep. God takes our sin seriously. 
The servant suffers isolation from humanity and suffers for our sin under the Lord's hand. And that shows us that in our desperate need, God takes our sin very seriously. But we, we came up with other words for it there, so we don't have to face it. Because, you know, that's a negative thing. We don't want to talk about negative. We've got to just be positive. So we call it other things. We say, well, I slipped and fell. I made a mistake. Just a mistake. It's just an honest mistake. I'm human. Come on. And so we come up with different words. We call them shortcomings. I've got some shortcomings. I make some mistakes. I have lapses. Oh, it was an accident. We refuse to bow to God's rule, and so we insist on going our own way, and we make up our own rules that coddle rather than kill our sins. We make peace with our sins rather than war with them. See, Jesus was declaring war on sin at the cross. But we're quite happy to uh, cuddle up with our sins and call them something else to make them less heinous. But our sin is death and corruption. No other way around it. We're in desperate need. That's why Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute for our sins. And, and, and attached to that is our total inability. So we're in desperate need, but there is nothing we can do about it. See, verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 53 is this picture of strange sheep. And it summarizes our inability and our inadequacy and our tendency to wander. It shows the danger that we are in without Jesus. Sheep without a shepherd. You're wandering without Jesus in life. You are in grave danger. You got Jesus, you're totally secure. You don't deserve it, but you got it. I'll tell you what, um, there's danger and there's this total inability. Uh, uh, verse 4, Isaiah 53, go back to verse 4. He bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. So what did we do? We esteemed him stricken, smitten, afflicted. That means that we thought that he was doing uh, penance for his own sin. That's what it means. And you know what verse 4 does? It completes Isaiah's very accurate diagnosis of the human condition. To sinful condition, to see the spirit, to see the servant, and, and to find no beauty in him reveals our bankruptcy, spiritually speaking. Makes us one with those who despised and rejected him. Our will is misguided apart from Christ. We can't help but go astray when we don't know Jesus. Think about how, how hard it is for us not to go astray when we do know Jesus. Our will is misguided apart from Christ and to look at him and see no answer for our sin problem is to condemn ourselves as corrupt and guilty before a holy God. See, every aspect of human nature is inadequate. We cannot get ourselves to God. The best among us can't work ourselves to God. The Bible tells us so. Romans chapter 3. Look with me there. Some of you don't look convinced. This ought to convince you. Romans chapter 3. Verse 10. It is written, None is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Sounds a lot like, oh, I don't know, Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed our message? The outside of Christ, bringing us to belief, giving us the ability to believe, drawing us by His love and His grace. We're Romans 3 people. The first part of the chapter. Not the last part where it gets better for us who are believers in Christ by the grace of God through faith in Christ. So you see that the better when you turn to Christ. But every avenue outside of Christ is blocked by which we can try to come to God. All human attempts fail. Nothing but God revealing himself by making the servant known and then drawing us to himself will do. Nothing will work except that. So what Jesus did on the cross, at the cross, was all God's work and none of ours. That's why we say, I didn't do anything to save myself. There was nothing I could have ever done to get myself to God. That's why we say, I came to faith in Christ and it was by no work of my own. No merit of my own. I didn't deserve it, but I got it. Praise God. It was from grace that I received the gift. One more reason why Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute for our sin. This is probably the one that's the toughest for us to to understand. But it was God's perfect will for it to happen. God sent the Son to the cross. Verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was God's will. He was pleased to do so. He was delighted to send Jesus to the cross. He desired to send Jesus to the cross. He chose to send Jesus to the cross. God really wanted to do this because the outcome he had planned before the world ever began was so awesome. God planned it before time began. Ephesians chapter 1. Anytime as a believer that you want to go back and just retrace the steps and, and realize some things about what God did, just go to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. See, God, before time began, decided to send the Son to the cross because of his great love and our desperate need and our total inability, and it was God's perfect will that it would happen. It was his will to crush Jesus for us. In the fullest sense, God sent Jesus to the cross. Acts chapter 2. After Jesus rose from the dead and went back up to the Father, he, the Holy Spirit, came upon the early believers and they lit the world on fire preaching the gospel. Same thing God wants us to do today. Listen to what they said. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There it is. It was God's plan. It was God's knowledge to to do it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. See what else they preached. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? It was God's hand and God's plan for the cross to take place. God sent Jesus to the cross. Scripture fulfilled in Christ. What were the results? What's the good benefit that comes out of the cross? By the way, the, cro- the, the whole idea of the cross is the only reason we can be here today doing anything of value, of anything of significance. And the only reason we can say with confidence if we're, if we're believers, I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross in my place as my substitute. And I stand here today, submitted to him, yielded to him because of what he's done for me. It's the only reason we can do it, because of the cross. So what results? I can't go through all of it because it would take our whole life to do that. But let's just go with three things. Number one, Redemption. These are some big words, and they mean so much. Redemption or, or forgiveness. Uh, Ephesians 1 and, and verse 7. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 11 of, of Isaiah 53, look at that with me. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. The righteous one, my servant, make many to count righteous. He will justify people by faith. E.F. Harrison said this, No other word in the Christian vocabulary deserves to be held more precious than Redeemer. For even more than Savior, it reminds the child of God that his salvation has been purchased at a great and personal cost. For the Lord has given himself for our sins in order to deliver us from them. That's why in Hebrews 10, 17, he could say that, my, that their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And let it go. God takes the initiative in forgiveness. It's like in Luke 15, the idea of the, the gracious father running to greet the prodigal son. Tim Keller talks about forgiveness in his book, The Reason for God. And he says this, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. So you can reach out in love to seek your enemy's renewal and change. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of sin yourself. When God determined to forgive us rather than punish us for all the ways we've wronged him and one another, he went to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ and died there 
On the cross, we see God doing visibly and cosmically what every human being must do to forgive someone, though on an infinitely greater scale. There was a debt to be paid. God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be borne. God himself bore it. Forgiveness is always a form of costly sacrifice. You see, in our daily lives, we might get a penalty waived. We might have a late fee forgiven. But if we don't absorb the cost, and if the person extending that to you doesn't absorb the cost, no skin off their, off their back or whatever, however you say it, uh, the corporation pays for that. There's no suffering on our part. If there's just kindness, uh, no cost. Someone's always got to pay the cost. And forgiveness, true forgiveness, is always a form of costly suffering. So this redemption that took place was a guilt offering. Verse 10 again, it says that he makes his soul, his soul makes an offering for sin. His soul is the guilt offering. He, he makes the idea of the death of the servant satisfying both the needs of sinful people and the requirements of God with respect to his broken law and his offended holiness. There's a guilt offering. One writer put it this way, the only way for God's holy love to be satisfied is for his holiness to be directed in judgment upon his appointed substitute in order that his love may be directed towards us in forgiveness. The substitute bears the penalty so we sinners may receive the pardon. So redemption is a benefit, a blessing of the cross that we receive by virtue of what Jesus did. It doesn't come for free. It came at great cost. The second thing is reconciliation. Peace with God. Verse 10, again, in, in, in Isaiah 53, it says that he will, will prolong his days. He will prosper. He will see and, and be satisfied. Verse 11, um, the, the righteous one will make many righteous. These are all words of peace. They're in the context of peace. And, and the, the word in, in verse 12, portion and spoil, they're the proceeds of war at war's end when peace has come. Verse 5 of, of Isaiah 53, he bore our punishment, the chastisement. It's the idea of correction by word or deed. It's the idea of him being the peace punishment. The punishment that brought us peace. And it was needed to secure peace with God. It needed to happen so that we could have peace with God. Peace with God is where we are brought near to Him and are reconciled that where He took the chastisement that brought us peace. Leon Morris put it this way, when, when we read that Christ is our peace, we are being told that completeness, wholeness, soundness in our lives depends upon Him. That what He has done provides for our deep needs. We were alienated from God, but He has brought us near. So we can have we, uh, the only reason we can, have, we can be brought near is because the, the enmity on our part, the, the, the war on our part uh, has been overcome and he can bring us near. Now, we've got to get to a really big word now. 
And I'm, uh, when I was a brand new believer, I, I read a book that had this word in it, besides the Bible, because it's in the Bible, um, and, and it blew me away. I, I was, I was um, it really opened some things up for me in my life as a, as a young believer. It's the word propitiation. We're not going to ignore it. We've got to look at it. it. Kids, help your parents write it down, okay? Propitiation. You've got to have to spell it out, sound it out. It's a long word. Propitiation. What it means, it means turning away anger. Now, a lot of people have misunderstood this, so, this word so much. In fact, many Bible translators put a different word in its place because they don't want to deal with the concept. They put the word expiation in, in place. And it's not the same word. Propitiation means turning away anger. Now, expiation is often used in its place, but it's a different word. It means making amends for a wrong done. Making amends for a wrong done. But propitiation, by the way, is personal. Expiation is impersonal. Propitiation is personal. It's done for a person. Expiation is impersonal. It's done for a crime. Expiation is impersonal process where sin is dealt with. But propitiation is a personal process where God is rightly angry over our sin. And if people are going to be forgiven, something must be done about the anger. Now, you've got to be careful here because whenever we start using words that we deal with, like anger, we immediately think, oh, God must be like that. So picture the person that you know who gets really angry. That's not God. Okay? God's wrath, God's anger is, is, we always have to say, when we talk about either love, anger, kindness, or whatever, that can be spoken of people and can be spoken of God, with God you've always got to say, but not like sinful humans. Got to make that qualification. You have to. Or else you run the risk of getting an image of God in your mind that drives your Christian life. For example, if you picture God as some mean, angry father who's always getting ready to punish you if you do something wrong and he's wagging his finger at you, you don't have the God of the Bible. You've got some picture of, of, a, of an unbiblical God. On the other hand, there is this idea of his just wrath over sin that must be dealt with if people are going to be forgiven. So when Jesus, in, in 1 John, it says that he sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. It's very important, this word. It's, it's the death, it, through the death of Christ is how God removes the divine wrath from sinners. Propitiation is where God's wrath is not merely appeased. Because that means that it's just, it's gone for a little while and it's coming back. Okay? It's not merely appeased, but it's put aside. It's put aside so that we can come freely and boldly into his presence without fear. So we don't like to speak of the wrath of God and we are, we are happy to accept an argument that allows us to get rid of it. Uh, but we must face it because our sins are the object of God's wrath. That's biblical. And every sin displeases God. One of the things Christ did at the cross was make the offering that turns away wrath and as we put our trust in Christ, we need not fear God's wrath anymore. This is assurance of peace for Christians. We have nothing to fear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's because of the propitiation of Christ. Get to know that word. 
It's a good word. It could be your word of the day if you want. We need to finish here. We need to bring the plane in for a landing. But here, one more I want to give you. Um, now, as Christ died on the cross, he dealt for, with, for all of our needs. Um, every aspect of our needs, our infirmities, our sorrows, our moral and spiritual guilt that alienate us from God. And in the way we declared war against God, he brings peace through the blood of his cross, as Colossians 1.20 tells us. But what happens as a result is something that no one, no one can, can, can imagine apart from God. It's transformation. Change. A transformed life. Verse 10 says, It was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes the offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. Key concept here. The Lord is committed to do his will, and the servant is involved in doing what the Lord willed, and whoever becomes a recipient of God's favor, his grace through his offering, become his children, his offspring. He shall see his offspring. See, when a person believes, Jesus sees a new offspring, a new creation in Christ. You, you have the right, as John 1.12 says, to become children of God. See in the Hebrew means experience. Experience. It's the idea that a relationship is started. He shall see his children. A relationship is started. You become a member of God's family. See, we stray like sheep, we return like children. The guilt offering was made, now what God's doing is gathering his family together. It's awesome. Many families will gather today. You're thinking about it right now. You're going, I got to get on the road. Come on, let's go. Well, here's the thing. God is gathering his family. He, he has paid for the sin and it was finished on the cross. And now the harvest of bringing in those who believe and are going to be saved by faith continues on. It's an amazing picture, and God does something. By believing in Christ, we become God's children. We become adopted into God's family. He draws us near in relationship, and it is initiated and sustained by him. And verse 5 of Isaiah 53 says, By his wounds you are healed. And Isaiah uses that healing in a total sense. A person fully restored, fully complete in Christ. The spiritual work of transformation that God does in the lives of those who believe. We are new creatures in Christ. We have a new life, reoriented around Jesus and centered on his word. The cross then becomes the compass by which all of life is reoriented, redirected. Alistair McGrath said, the way we think and the way we act must be shaped by the cross. John Stott said, the cross transforms everything. It gives us a new worshiping relationship to God, a new and balanced understanding of ourselves, a new incentive to give ourselves in mission, a new love for our enemies and a new courage to face the perplexities of suffering. Christians, if you're a Christian and you hear these words, you know that the cross should change everything, but sometimes you find surprisingly little changed in your life and you wonder why. And sometimes you yearn for that change and you don't see it. You're like, I, I came to know Christ. Where's the change? Where's the power of the Holy Spirit? Where's the greater works than these? 
See, the cross, when we come to the cross, it spells the end of the world as we know it. It opens, to a, 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 opens us up to a world that we could never imagine. Life in the spirit, rather than always in the flesh. But sometimes, we walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. See, we, I'll tell you why we have this problem. We come to faith in Christ and we have our sins forgiven, but we still sin. And sometimes we still sin a lot. But Jesus wants us to be sinning less. That's biblical. Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. But see, what happens is sometimes we hinder God's process by the choices we make. We all make choices. We're all going to make choices today. We made choices last night. Made choices last week. Some of us are regretting choices we made 20 years ago. Right? So we make choices, and sometimes we sabotage work for fear that he might call us to do something we don't feel fit to do. Sometimes we buy an untrue version of the gospel that doesn't cost very much. Demands even less. And sometimes we're irritable and picky and short-fused and angry and unforgiving because we live with a sense of entitlement rather than being broken before a holy God. I know. This is our struggle every day. It's kind of like an antenna. Sometimes the antenna's broken. Our reception is off. You know, it's like a like a satellite dish that's pointed in the wrong direction. We can't get the signals that God's sending to us. Things go haywire. Gets crossed. Philippians chapter 2 says, God is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. Interestingly, the verse right before that. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't work for it because it was already paid for. If you know Jesus... Your sins were already paid for. You don't work for your salvation. But you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You got to cooperate with God because he, he is willing and wanting to do in and through you what you could never imagine. What is Jesus doing right now? Making crackle sounds in the room. <laughs> What's Jesus doing right now? Last verse, last phrase. Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many. He did that. Amazing that Isaiah 53 was written 700 plus years before the act and it's written as if it was done. He bore the sin of many. But listen to this last part. He makes intercession for the transgressors. If you're a Christian right now, Jesus is praying for you. He is praying that you would be strong. He is praying that you would be resolute in your convictions. He is praying that you wouldn't cave under the pressure of a a society that is not bent towards biblical norms. He is praying for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And that thought can only humble us. can only humble us. As the worship team comes back up, or whoever's left with the worship team... um, let me just say this last thing if you're not a Christian if you're not a Christian you need Jesus bad for your good (laughs) you need him bad but it's for your good he died for your good and his glory 
And I'm going to say, as Paul said, let me say this. You, if you're not a Christian and you hear these words, you are responsible for what you do with the news. You are responsible for what you do with Christ. You've heard the news. It's up to you. And that's biblical. I'm going to say it like Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. I implore you. I urge you. I invite you. I ask you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that only you know where each person is at, so we preach Christ crucified. And we leave the outcome to you. And you get all the glory. Thank you, Lord, that, that the outcome of your death is joy. Thank you, Lord, that you are gathering your family together. I pray, Lord, that somebody would join your family today from hearing these words that they would choose to follow Jesus, that they would say, I believe, I believe he died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead and he took my place and he, he substituted himself for me. I believe. And I pray, Lord, that they would experience the, the, the amazing forgiveness, the amazing grace, the amazing love that you have for them. Thank you, Lord, that you're gathering your family together. And thank you, Lord, that you have all authority to do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.